let's take our Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is actually uh, the last part of our uh, series on change that we've been in for several months. And we're going to talk about self-control today, self-control. Uh, we've actually have a picture that we can throw up on the screen about right now for those of you who are into technology. Um, there's actually an app out there called the self-control app. We can throw it up on the screen whenever you guys are ready back there. But here's basically, uh, that's the app. Did anybody know that there was a self-control app? If you did, you wouldn't raise your hand because you'd be ashamed that you knew about it. Here's basically the self-control app. It is a free and open source application for the Mac operating system that lets you block your own access to distracting websites, your mail servers, or anything else on the internet. Just set up a time to block for or add sites to your blacklist and then click start until that timer expires. Get this, Facebook addicts. You will be unable to access those sites at all, even if you restart your computer or delete this application. And all of those who struggle with the clicky syndrome said, oh my, that's good. We can go back to the sermon graphic. You know, in our, in our culture today, we have so much to distract us, don't we? We have so many things that say, just let it go. Not like the Frozen song, but simply just, this will make you happy. Just let your appetites, whatever those desires may be, let those have their full expression, and that will bring you a certain level of happiness. But if you've lived long at all, you know that that is a pack of lies. And often the things that we exercise self-indulgence in where we simply just let ourselves go and let passion, let lust, let anger, let pride just take over, the result from that is absolutely devastating. Not only spiritually, but financially, relationally. And um, since we're talking about that, I, I would like to have a moment of catharsis with you and share one of my past sins um, boy, it gets quiet. This is from, this is from 2006, Colleyville, Texas, the state of Texas, offense, speeding. The offender, Jeffrey Robinson, $198. You're like, how fast were you going? It was 45 and a 30. But looking back, the reason why I was speeding to begin with, I had things to do. Anybody else? Can you, can you, can you identify with that? Like the speed limit signs are there. I know there may be somewhat of a purpose, but you see, I have things to do. This is important. That may apply to all those other sinners, but for right now, I have places to go. And this was back in the time, and I know for some of our students, you can't imagine a time in which you couldn't get everything on the planet on your phone. This is actually when you actually had to buy an iPod. And for some of you are like, I remember where there was no such thing, all right? I was saving up to get an iPod, but what I ended up doing is spending $198 
on a ticket. And the reason why it cost me that much money is because I had a lack of self-control. Since I've been going through a lot of old records, I say, you know, that's a $198 ticket. But when I was studying for this this message, I was thinking about self-control and about all of those stories in the Old Testament that are going to feed into 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 24 through 27. We'll come to that text, but it's helpful for us to remember that when the New Testament was written, it was written understanding that the Old Testament was also inspired by God. So all of these things in the mind of the Apostle Paul came to bear on when he wrote about self-control. And here's basically what we want to get across today from the Bible. That self-control is self-limitation that leads to self-preservation for the glory of God. Simply put, exercising self-control as a follower of Jesus Christ will preserve us from being caught by traps that would otherwise destroy our effectiveness for Jesus Christ. And we all have known of people who they get really interested in church. The invitation is given. Man, they walk down. They may be crying. They say, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. They may be baptized in a lake or baptized in a baptistry. They may even go to Bible college and get a degree in theology. And they begin telling other people about Jesus. But you give it three years. Give it five years. Give it ten years. And through a lack of self-control, they make the headlines. You know exactly what I'm talking about. People that we all thought, whether they were a preaching minister, a missionary, whether they were just somebody in your circle of friends that you thought, man, they're really on track with God. And they allow a lack of self-control just to take over and they make mistakes that God can forgive, but the mistakes erase any credibility they have with people. When they start the conversation, Jesus, people say, shut up, because I see that you don't really care about that because you deny Jesus through your actions. And what we're going to get to is some deadly serious stuff here for the Christians. That every single one of us in here, including myself, have the potential to destroy, to annihilate any level of respect, any level of influence that we have with our family and with people who don't know Jesus. You say, well, Jeff, does God forgive? He forgives. But the influence rarely comes back to where it was. So as we conclude this series this morning, I'm begging you, as I've tried to do preparing for this, let's look within this morning. This is not going to be necessarily an easy message, but it is something that for many of us will be oxygen for our life, oxygen for our relationship with God, our marriage, our financial well-being, because we know many people in our culture have let self-control take over, let Uh, self-indulgence take over, and the results are absolutely catastrophic. And before we get into some Old Testament examples, I want you to go with me on this train of thought that many of us don't take stuff seriously until we see how much damage it actually causes. You see, because we're sinners, many times the things that we think that we really, really want are the very things that will destroy us. Right? 
I mean, how many of us, we, we came to that point where we got saved, we had a heart change, and we begin to follow Jesus, but then we wake up morning after morning, and then we say, Lord, in my prayer time, it's like, I want to serve you, but it seems like I'm drawn away by all of these things that I know are jacked up. Like, I'm not having to go into Spencer's at the mall and think up something twisted. Nervous laughter. Like, I don't, I don't have to get up saying, you know what, I want to find something, something dirty that makes me want to feel like I've got to take a bath on television or on the computer screen today. That's what I want to do. I want to feel like, I want to feel guilty. That's what I want. We don't do that. But the fact that you and I, all of us in here are sinners, we've got a, a nature that even though God, if you've been saved, even though he gives you a new heart, we still have that indwelling sin that pulls us to things that will destroy us. And here's the difference. When you get saved and you give your life to Christ, when you turn away from your sin, when you repent and become a follower of Jesus, not a religious person, But a person who's willing to say, God, I'm giving you all that I am, warts and all, mistakes and all, challenges and all, addictions and all, I am yours. When that happens, God, through his spirit, gives us new desires. And he actually gives us the ability, this is so awesome, to defeat the old nature so that we don't have to live in defeat. Here's an Old Testament verse that kind of sets up the parameters of where we're going for today. Proverbs 25, 28. The Bible says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Man, back in that day and time, if your city had walls that were broken down, you were absolutely without a defense. What it means is that if we don't have self-control, then we are totally open to any attack that the enemy may give. So self-control is, we could say, it is the discipline that's given by the Holy Spirit for us to resist temptation. You say, well, Jeff, what are the actual dangers of self-control? Well, there's several from the Old Testament. One would be anger and insecurity, and it destroys families. Remember King Saul? Remember David out there taking care of the sheep, killing lions? killing bears and all he had was his sling and it wasn't one of those crossman slingshots it was actually a deadly weapon in that day and time david comes he defeats goliath people begin to sing songs david becomes the military leader and they say saul has slain his thousands but david has slain his tens of thousands now that tells you a little difference in the cultures imagine us today singing something like that about political leaders Joe Biden has slain his thousands, then stood over them with a creepy grin, and then Donald Trump is it's just like, no, we don't, we don't understand that way. But in that day and time, military success was your pedigree to get political leadership and political trust. So what happened is that Saul began to be jealous of David. He began to have anger and bitterness and envy well up in his heart. So imagine if you were David, you were called in to play your heart for the king, a little live entertainment. And the Bible tells us that Saul grabbed a spear and tried to pin David to the wall. And David runs. And it happened on more than one occasion. And Saul's anger, his lack of self-control, his anger, his jealousy... His envy, his insecurity ended up spilling over into his family and destroying any relationship that he had with his family. And you see it with the way that he talks to his wife. 
And if we were to translate that literally in a certain argument that they were having, he called her something that you would never, if you're an honorable man of God, you would ever call your wife. He even tried to take out his own son because he could not handle not being first place. No self-control, total self-indulgence. And here's a few verses from the book of Proverbs that helps us see the damaging effects of a lack of self-control relating to anger. Proverbs 16, 12, 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. It means that if you have wisdom, you will not respond to every insult that you're given. Proverbs nineteen eleven, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It means that if you are an unwise person who will run roughshod over people, whenever you are offended, you will hold on to that and never let it go. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, 19, a man of great wrath will pay the penalty. For if you deliver him, you will have to do it again. It means that if you're in a close relationship or friendship with a person that simply cannot keep their top from blowing, then you're going to be bailing them out all the time. Proverbs 22, 24 through 25, the Bible says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger or controlled by anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Man, that means especially for our singles, if you know that the person that you may be interested in dating has a temper and they cannot control it, there's some things that Jesus needs to fix before you come along. Amen? There's sometimes that we have a missionary mentality and we think so much of ourselves. You say, well, I will change that person. And then when you try to change them, they say, you're just like my mother. You're just like my dad. And it comes full circle. Proverbs 29, 22. A man of great wrath stirs up strife. And one given to anger causes much transgression. It means that a person who loves drama... A person that feeds on it. It's like if they could, they would say, Oh Lord, help me come across some sweet, syrupy, juicy chunk of gossip. And help me to spread that as much as I can. And they just love it. The Bible says it's a lack of self-control and a person who loves stirring up strife actually has an anger problem. And if you get in cahoots with them, they will bring drama. They will bring destruction in your life. You say, now, Jeff, what about people who don't know Jesus? You still love them. But what the Bible is talking about is when you get into a deep relationship with someone and they are the go-to person, the Bible says, avoid those who can't control themselves. Why? Because they are a volcano waiting to go off. They are a volcano waiting to go off. And many times um, people say, well, Jeff, I'm actually married to someone like that. No joke. This is not funny. No joke. Say, I'm actually married to someone like that and I don't know what to do. It seems like no matter what we do, he or she cannot control their anger. A couple of weeks we looked at Ephesians chapter 5 and regarding to marriage. And it's a freeing thing that we can't change anybody. None of us. I can't change you, you can't change me, you can't change your husband, can't change your wife. That's when, in the grace of the Holy Spirit, you begin to pray for them and trust it, and trust it to God. So there's great damage that comes in relationships when there's a lack of self-control and anger. There's also great damage that can happen 
Aren't you glad you came to church? It's like, welcome to church. Everything's going to be awful. If you have a lack of self-control, it will. All right. Pride and arrogance destroys leadership potential. King Nebuchadnezzar, remember him in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, greatest king of that time. One day he went out on his balcony, his rooftop, and he began to say, Look at this mighty city, Babylon, that I have created by the might of my power and by my strength. And it was almost like he just thought he was God. He said, look, look at all what I've done. Look, look at the money. Look at the accolades. Look at all of these things. And then God said in so many words, I'm going to teach you humility. And for seven years, he was out in the field. And this is actually a medical uh, issue that we know of today called lycanthropy. And he thought his mind was like he was an ox. A cow and he ate grass and his fingernails grew and he was absolutely out of his mind. After those seven years were passed, the words that he uttered about God were from a man who had been humbled, but he lost leadership potential for seven years if he had not given praise to God. There's one story I heard about of a CEO and the company was doing very, very well and And he was receiving all of these accolades from people saying, wow, you guys are just blowing up business. And how are you doing all of this? And it was actually his team that made him successful. And instead of giving honor to his team, he took it all for himself. He took all the credit and they all left and the company imploded. You see, pride and the willing, the desire to be recognized can lead to great, great destruction. When actually freedom comes from self-control that says it doesn't matter if I'm recognized. I want Jesus to be recognized and I want to raise other people up. Not only does anger and pride bring destruction through a lack of self-control, but also lust and sexual immorality. What happens is that destroys physical health and also a reputation. Probably the strong man of the Old Testament, Samson. In Judges chapter 14, this is Samson and all of his power and his glory. He went down to a Philistine city. He saw a girl there and he told his mother and father, he says, now go get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said, is there not a woman among the daughters and the relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? What they're saying is, isn't there a girl who loves the Lord? Looks aren't everything, Samson. What the parents are doing is maybe like some of you as parents, you're pleading with your child. Don't make this mistake. And because Samson was driven by his lust, here's what he says. Judges chapter 14, verse 3. But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is right in my eyes. And that is crazy. That is absolutely crazy because here's the thing. His father and his mother are trying to speak life and give him wisdom that he didn't yet have. And you know the irony of Samson? The irony of Samson is that at the end of his life, when he repeatedly referenced, she looks good to my eyes, what did he end up losing? The Philistines put out his eyes and he was put like an animal treading out grain. He was led by the lust of his eyes and he ended up losing his eyes. Jesus gives a hyperbole, an example that's very extreme to get people's attention. 
And he says that if your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. For what, what good would it be to be thrown into hell with two good hands? Jesus is not saying, go out back, sharpen the axe, and go to town. Jesus is not saying, do the Jack Bauer thing on yourself. What Jesus is saying is that eternity matters, right? Like people matter, influence matters. So Jesus is saying, look, I know you guys struggle. Everybody has an eye that offends them. Everybody has a hand, something that draws us to the fire. But Jesus is saying that influence and the glory of God and eternity matter so much that whatever it is that's drawing you to self-indulgence, cut it off and cast it from you by the power of Jesus Christ. Another one, another uh, damaging, we could say, evidence of a lack of self-control would be gluttony. Uh, What happens with gluttony is it destroys the body and the finances and it replaces God with food. Now, it's very interesting in Scripture that gluttony doesn't always have to do with overeating. And overeating doesn't always have to do with weight. But the Bible uses gluttony. When you do a word study on it, it is a miscellaneous drawer for allowing the human desires that are out of whack with what God has properly intended to take over and dominate the life. A glutton would be a person who says, I can't wait because my life is about food. I'm eating breakfast. What's for dinner? Not into the terms of looking forward to a good meal. Some of you are like, well, that's right here. I mean, I'm just looking, you know, what are we going to do after lunch, right? Like, what are we going to do after this? It's not saying that we don't appreciate the good things that God has given us. Because I praise the Lord for the food that he gives. I mean, you realize that God could have created a world in which food was pretty much like the Jetsons? Just take a pill, bro. Take the pill. The bacon's a little bit burnt this morning, but, you know, we'll try it the next day. But God created a world in which there are things that you can eat that are just awesome. And we could talk about that all day long. Not even, not even things like, like donuts and hamburgers, but natural things. I mean, fruit and vegetables. It's amazing what God has given us to enjoy. But when the Bible talks about gluttony, it doesn't mean that you sit down and you eat unleavened bread 24-7 and you drink nothing but water. What it means is to where food replaces Christ is what drives you. Does that make sense? It means to where food becomes all-encompassing. It means that when we're down, we go to food. We don't go to Christ. We go to food. We go to some type of physical fulfillment for a spiritual issue. It relates to the lack of financial self-control where you say, man, I know I didn't have the money for it, but I just wanted to get it. And we end up in incredible, incredible debt because of a lack of self-control. Control. Many people end up in the hospital and they've put themselves there by lack of self-control. Here's what Augustine says about sin. He says, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire, like the desire for food, or longing or ambition and try desperately to fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. Amen? 
It's found in Jesus. And so all of these things, like the drive for a man to have a woman and a woman to have a man, and the desire to be recognized for something great, and the desire to have friends, the desire to enjoy good food with people that you love, all of those things, when you have a great meal, when you are making love with your husband or your wife, when you have good friends around the dinner table, we just said that in church. The Bible speaks about it. All of those things should cause us to thank God for His good gifts. When the Bible speaks about self-control, it's not saying to live on a cold concrete floor and again, eat nothing but unleavened bread and wear nothing but sackcloth and drink only water. That is called asceticism. And it is a false belief system that says, as much as I cannot do, the closer I am to God. Meaning the most, I mean, the more I can torture myself, the better I feel about my relationship with God. Who gets the glory in that? We do. Biblical Christianity, God has given us all good things to enjoy. But the problem comes when we begin to look at those things as being the Savior. So the motivation of self-control. A lot of us, we say, man, I, I agree with that. Pride, being an arrogant jerk, that destroys relationships. Sexual immorality, that destroys all sorts of things. Body, finances, reputation, families. All of that. Gluttony, yep, that destroys things as well. But what is the motivation for self-control? And what I want to do in these few remaining minutes that we have is give a case from Scripture, all of these thoughts taken together with the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. He gives a peculiar and unusual motivation for being self-control. Controlled. Verse 24. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You notice the really cool sports metaphors that the Apostle Paul likens the Christian life to, to in verse 24, a race. And then we'll get to this in a moment in verse 26, a boxing match. In the the Apostle Paul's day in Corinth, which Corinthians was the church in Corinth, it was a huge place that had actually, we could call it maybe minor league Olympic games. It wasn't as big as the ones in Olympus. But it was a huge city that had these games so the people would be familiar with what it was like. What it was like to see those runners run the race. And at the end, the one who won would get basically just a little ring of foliage placed on their heads. And athletes in that day and time had to give a commitment to train for 10 months solid. Strict diet, strict training schedule, regimen, all of that to win. The Apostle Paul is saying something that in a day or two fades away and is destroyed. And for those of you that enjoy boxing or mixed martial arts, do you know the uh, hand wraps that the Romans used in that day and time? It was leather wraps that went down to the wrist. That's it, leather. That makes the four-ounce gloves that the UFC uses, uh, that makes it look like two men are playing patty cake. Not only that, but when it was in the arena in Rome with the gladiators, they would even have gladiatorial boxing matches to where they would take lead balls and intertwine them in in 
the leather. Leather upon hand with lead balls. You can imagine the carnage because the point was not to protect the fighter in that day. The point was to maim and kill the fighter. And so why does the Apostle Paul use these metaphors? Well, because the Christian life is a fight. It's a gutter fight. Satan wants to destroy us. But through the power of Jesus Christ, we can exercise self-control. You see, what the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, Christians, these athletes exercise amazing levels of self-control for things that don't even last long. It's just here for a moment. And that's just for one person. But he's saying, he's writing the whole church. This is so encouraging. He's saying, but all of us that we strive, we run for End of verse 25, an imperishable crown. It means that when you live your life for Christ, you will be tempted. That means that you're alive. Can I get a witness? People say, well, Jeff, I've been tempted. That means that you're alive. But because I love Christ, I'm going to give control of my life to him on a daily basis. So therefore, based upon that, based upon the fact that we run for something that doesn't fade, he says in verse 26, Therefore, or so, I do not run aimlessly. What the Apostle Paul is saying, what the Word of God is teaching, is that we as Christ followers don't live randomly. We don't just live based upon what may happen, but we have self-control that we exercise because there's a point to how we live. Do we realize that as followers of Jesus Christ, that there is a point for your work? There's a point for cleaning dirty diapers. It's not just to clear the air. There's a point in godly parenting. There's a point in working through issues in marriage. There's a point for all of that. And the Apostle Paul is saying the point for exercising self-control is not solely that we won't make a mess of our family through being an arrogant jerk and prideful. He says that's not the motivation. The Apostle Paul is saying the motivation is not just so that you will not lose leadership potential like Nebuchadnezzar or some king who's full of himself. He's saying the motivation of why we hold ourselves back from things that would destroy us is not just out of self-preservation, but it is self-preservation for the glory of God. How is that evidenced? Look at what the text says. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. The apostle Paul says the Christian life is not a little shadow boxing thing. It's not a man playing slappy. Out in a field somewhere, just acting like he's fighting an imaginary opponent. What he's saying is that we have a point for our living. Amen? That when we are tempted and we say, oh, I'm so tempted by this. to, to, To look at pornography or to be angry or to be greedy or lustful. All of those things are pulling at me. But the reason why the motivation of my heart is for me not to go down that road is because I don't want to lose influence notice verse 27 but i discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others i myself should be disqualified what the bible is telling us here is something that we already know you guys didn't even need me to come to tell you this you're smart enough to figure it out on your own that it is possible for our words to be undercut by our actions right And notice how the Apostle Paul ties together physical self-control. This is so deep. Physical self-control 
with preaching, a.k.a. communicating the gospel. He says the reason why we exercise self-control is not just so that we will grow to be healthy and have those fit bodies because, man, our culture is full of people who actually exercise incredible levels of self-control. Athletes, I mean, they are absolutely shredded. They're the people who are airbrushed on the front of magazines that we look at and say, well, man, I wish I could be like that. All of that, the the Apostle Paul saying people can exercise self-control for many reasons, but the reason why we restrain ourselves is so that our actions will not undercut the message that we preach. Sure, we can let wasting our life be a motivation. Wouldn't that be a bummer? You get saved, come to Jesus, biblically baptized, get part of a, of a gospel-preaching church like this, and you're serving people. But then there's a huge, huge, huge thing that happens to where you lose credibility with people. You don't lose your salvation, but you lose credibility. That's a motivation not to waste our life. We could let not damaging people be a motivation. Say, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that girl that they say, do you remember? And then it's a negative illustration. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that over all of that, disappointing Jesus Christ, that should be our motivation. At the end of his life, he says, I want to have fought the fight and run the race. You see, brothers and sisters, we don't serve Jesus to get Jesus' approval through the grace of God that I cannot fully understand. He has placed His love on us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that love is unconditional. Isn't that mind-blowing? The fact that Jesus Christ loves you and that He loves me. And here's the thing. He's not like us where we don't really know each other. Even in a marriage, you never can fully know all of the thoughts of your spouse. But the fact that he knows all of those things, he knows dumb things that we're going to do in the future, but yet he has still placed his love on us. That is something that is foreign to every other system of belief, every religion, the concept of grace, that Jesus Christ loves sinners. Wow. He knows me, but he loves me to the point that he gives his son and he will never, ever, ever let me go. Like a song that we're going to sing at the closing of this service, that he is always, always with us. That is motivation to say, I love him. And I do not want to do anything that would dishonor Jesus Christ. So here's some practical ways that we exercise self-control. One would be don't wait if you're struggling with an area in your life. Don't wait for some ecstatic, beam-me-up, Scotty experience in order for to get quote-unquote freedom, but declare war on sin today and avoid walking in slippery places. The Lord has given us all power to follow after Him. But many times what happens is we shoot ourselves in the foot because we're waiting for something that the Bible has already given us. A way that you can do that is, is avoid ways of temptation that you know you would slide into. Get involved in a small group Bible study here at Rocky Mount Baptist Church. And whenever you are tempted, which we are all tempted, look beyond that to the greater rewards. We had the privilege of spending some time with family here recently, and my mom has all of these, uh, all of these tomato plants on the back porch. And Micah is almost three years old, and he loves to pick the tomatoes, even when they're not ripe. And so we try to explain to him, if you, if you pick them when they're green, that's not, that's not good. And so anything that's remotely green... Or maybe uh, 
not green. He, we say you can pick that. But there were times where we'd be out on the, on the back porch and he'd say, what about this one? I'm like, no, no, Bubby, that's, that's, you can't, can't pick that. What about this one? No, you've already picked all of the ones that are ready to be picked and then some. And then there was a certain point where he said, what about this one? It's just like it overcame him, the tomato picking desire. And he just grabs this green tomato off. We just kind of look and, and we say, this is a moment of teaching. But I thought about that. I say, you know, his desire to pick that fruit and enjoy it and to be the man and be like, you know, look who, look who brought home the produce. I'm almost three, bro. I got you covered. You know, Mimi and Papa. But he, he wanted to pick it before it was time. And often with temptation, it's, especially sexually, it's just that it's not time. For the singles in here, look forward to the greater reward. Don't take the false bait that the enemy is laying out saying that happiness comes from this. Take time to pray. When you are tempted to where, whether your issue is drinking or anger or what have you, in that moment, begin to call out to Jesus Christ and ask Him for strength and think about the greater reward. And most of all, let the love of Jesus Christ drive your actions. We don't, we don't try to, to refrain from these things so that we'll just have a better life. We don't even refrain from these things out of fear of judgment because once you're saved, you no longer have to fear the wrath of God. That's good. But we let the love of Jesus Christ drive our actions. And you see, when you let the love of Jesus Christ drive your actions, you don't have to live your life worrying about not sinning. Some people think that's the Christian life, that when you become a follower of Jesus, you've just got to live and say, okay, all right, here's the list of what I'm not supposed to do. I got to watch out for this. Got to watch out for this. Got to smash all of the televisions that I can see. I don't talk with lost people. All these weird things. But biblically, it's not saying that you've got to sit here in fear on what's going to take over your life, but you simply follow Jesus Christ, and in doing that, you're not following the lust of the flesh. And the Bible says that this is the end of Galatians chapter 5, that all of those who have been saved have crucified the flesh and its desires. That means every single day when you and I get up, it is a war. But through the power of Jesus Christ, you can declare unrestricted war on the old nature and the things that would destroy any impact of our lives upon other people. And based upon Jeff, I could never do that. Based upon your power, we could never do that. But based upon Jesus Christ, we can have victory through Holy Spirit-driven self-control.